We'll open to Matthew 21 this morning for our text. Matthew 21. All right. Well, before we read the word together, would you come one more time to the Lord in prayer with me? Lord, we have come now to quiet our hearts one last time before you and ask that you would speak to us, give us ears to hear and eyes to see what's in this inspired text. Give us a sensitivity of spirit and a keenness of mind that we may receive the applications of this text to our situation at this very moment. For we know that your word is not merely empty words on pages copied from ancient texts, but that your word is living and powerful and sharper than any sword able to pierce down to the deepest parts of our soul and expose us before Yourself, that we may receive, we trust and we pray, that we may receive mercy at Your hand to pour into the wounds of our souls that You would lay bare. So come, please, now, and minister Your Word to us in the might and power of your Holy Spirit. And it is in the name of your Son that we ask you for it. Amen. Matthew chapter 21, as we continue our study together through the Gospel of Matthew. Authority is a crucial issue. Authority. In the days leading up to the American War for Independence, there was a lot of discussion, a lot of writing, as to what constituted legitimate authority. Whether that authority could be found in the king or in the people governed, as to when that authority had become illegitimate, if it could become illegitimate at all, when that authority could be forfeited. And in those days, if you believed in the legitimacy of the authority of King George, then you looked at those who were seeking authority as um, rebels and traitors to what God had divinely appointed, right? And if, on the other hand, you saw his authority as being illegitimate, then you would look at those same people as your heroes, as patriots. And of course, some people, as you know, began with one sort of mindset, with one allegiance, and in the course of the conflict, or at least the days leading up to it, changed their minds and altered their allegiances. And that made all the difference. In fact, where your allegiance was and who you believed had legitimate authority made the difference in many cases as to whether you would live or die. Now, Jesus of Nazareth, what do you think of Him? That was... The crucial question for everybody in Jesus' day. And it's just as important a question for us today. Is His authority legitimate? Is it truly from God? That was the question that was put before Him. It was the question on the minds of all of those in the city of Jerusalem when He so publicly came in proclaiming Himself as the fulfiller of the Scriptures, as the Messiah for whom God's people were waiting, as the King of kings and Lord of lords. So 
Here's the question, verse 23, Matthew chapter 21. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. And here's his question. The baptism of John, where did it come from? From heaven or from man? And so they discussed it among themselves, saying, well, if we say from heaven, then he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? And if we say from man, then we are afraid of the crowd. They all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What do you think? He says, a man had two sons. And he went to the first and he said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir. But he did not. Which of the two sons did the will of his father? And they answered, the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes will go into the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Well, this is the beginning of a very uh, extended passage uh, of Scripture that really runs from from this point all the way to the end of chapter um, 23 that uh, take place during the last week of Jesus' life, probably on a Tuesday. Remember that he entered into the city of Jerusalem on the donkey, probably on Sunday, probably some things happened on Monday, all of this taking place on Tuesday. Remember, though, that the day before, on Monday, Jesus had done something that was shocking. It was even more shocking to the people in His day than it it is to us as we read it. But even though we can tell something dramatic is happening, and of course, that was the story, that was the account of how Jesus went into the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and those who bought and sold and just, just like kicked everybody out of there. And, uh, and he did this in a very public and dramatic way. And then he left and he went out of the city over to a nearby town, the town of Bethany, where he spent Monday night. And so the next day, he comes into the temple again. And that's when this happens. They put to him this question, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? Because the priests of the temple were in charge of guarding the temple to make sure that nothing unclean or impure would enter into it, that everything in the temple was done according to the will of God. These priests were charged with guarding the temple, just like Adam had been charged with guarding the garden and keeping it uh, pure from anything that would be unclean. But now Jesus had taken it on himself to come in and cleanse this temple as if the priests weren't doing their job properly. And if high priest Caiaphas hadn't authorized Jesus to make these sweeping changes, then they want to know who has. Who gave you this authority? Where did your authority come from? It is a crucial question, and it was a question that divided people. It divided people right in half in Jesus' day. Where did this authority over the temple of Almighty God 
Where did that authority come from? And of course, the answer is, we know that he is a high priest, not of any earthly tabernacle, but a high priest of the heavenly temple, a high priest not made with human hands, but chosen by God himself, a high priest after the order of Melchizedek with no father, no mother, no earthly lineage, chosen of God. He is a high priest of the heavenly tabernacle of which the earthly is just a, uh, a copy. He is not replaced by reason of death, for he ever lives to make intercession for his people. Jesus, the high priest of the people of God, pleads his own blood as the sacrifice to propitiate the wrath of God and to cover over our sins. He guards God's heavenly holy place so that nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. He is the high priest of God's people by God's own appointing, and he doesn't need any earthly man to give him authority. He bears that authority in himself. But that's not the answer that he gave to the... uh, people who questioned him. Because sometimes you answer a fool according to his what? Yeah. And uh, Jesus does give them that sort of answer. He gives an answer that exposes their hypocrisy. And um, because they're not really seeking truth, they're seeking a pretext on which to condemn him, which is already uh, where their minds are made up. And you know, by the way, sometimes that's what a good apologist does, a good defender of the faith. Sometimes a good apologist answers a question with a question. Sometimes he answers a question by showing the hypocrisy of the worldview of those who are asking the question. And so Jesus does with these men answer this question with a question, and here's his question. What about the baptism of John the Baptist? Did it come from God or did it have a human origin? Was it just John that made up this thing? Was it his message or was it really and truly a message from God? John's baptism. So, it's important that we think back to John's baptism and the significance of it and how Jesus' ministry was tied in together. And if you go back and, and you missed some of the sermons, you can go back and listen to some of the sermons that come from uh, those, those places where Jesus interacts with John now have been unfolded all through this gospel. But John came baptizing. Baptism is a form of ritual washing. And there are several kinds of washings in the Old Testament. There was sometimes you, there, you would wash um, the, the the materials that were used in the tent in, in the tabernacle. Uh, sometimes people would be washed. They would there was a washing of the hands that the priests did before they uh, went into the temple. And there was also a washing of the whole body, bodily immersion in a mikvah. And this took place when there was a major breach of ceremonial cleanliness before God, or when there was a non-Jew, someone who was an outsider of the people of God, who yet became convinced that the God of Israel was the one true and living God. They put their faith and trust in that God. They were washed and cleansed as part of the process of becoming a proselyte. And uh, they were converted, as it were. These people... um, were offended, the the, the scribes and the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders were offended because what John was doing, John the Baptist, out at the River Jordan, was calling on the nation of Israel to come and repent to the people of God, supposedly. 
those who were physically descended from Abraham, he said, you must come and be spiritually cleansed. You need to be converted, brought truly into the people of God because your hearts, while you're outwardly God's people, your hearts are far from Him. He was of a piece with what the prophets said when they told the people of Israel that you are circumcised in your bodies, but you need to have a circumcision of the heart that only God can do. You need to come to Him with deep contrition and repentance over your sin, lay down your self-righteousness and call upon Him for mercy. That's what John was doing. Remember his message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And of course, the Jewish leadership resented the implication that they were not God's people because they were very proud of their connection, their physical connection with Abraham and his his descendants. So now when Jesus posed this question to them, what about the baptism of John? Everyone knew that the Jewish leadership rejected John um, they were glad. In fact, they possibly were even secretly complicit in his death. But they were, they were glad to be rid of him. So they obviously can't come to Jesus and say, well, his baptism was from heaven then. But they also, on the other hand, they know that the vast crowds of common Jews revered John as a great prophet. And so they feared publicly denouncing him like that. In fact, Mark or Luke, one of the two, says that they actually fear that the people would come and stone them if they said something like that. And so they were, as it were, between the rock and the hard place and not knowing what to say, and that's exactly what they did. They just said, we can't tell you. We don't know. And so Jesus turns it right back on to them. Well, neither will I tell you by what authority... I do these things. It was enough for him that he had exposed their hypocrisy and shut their mouths. But in reality, of course, his non-answer left no doubt, should leave us in no doubt as to the true answer. Because Jesus' ministry is linked together with the ministry of John the Baptist. You can see this as you go back into the uh, past chapters, back in chapter 3 and 4 and 11 and 16 and 17. Again and again, Matthew's made it clear, Jesus' ministry is closely linked together with the ministry of the one who came before him, John called the Baptist. John stood up and said that he who comes after me is greater than me because he was actually before me which no doubt left people scratching their heads. He is greater than me, John said. I'm not even worthy to undo his shoes. He is so much greater than I. I baptize you with water, but he will come baptizing you with the Holy Spirit of Almighty God. And when Christ was finally made known to him, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then, of course, when Jesus came, his Matthew records it. His own message was an echo of the message of John. Jesus' message was, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus said, the end time Elijah has come, who came to prepare the way for the Messiah. And he laid the groundwork the groundwork of repentance so that people might rejoice then when the Savior came. That's the way these ministries work together. It is the way that the gospel works among people who will have ears to hear. First, the gospel brings a word of repentance before there is condemnation. But then the gospel always moves people from repentance to rejoicing in the Savior that God has provided. And it is only those who repent who are ready to rejoice because they know how much 
They need a deliverer. So John's ministry was essential. It was important. It was ordained by God. And it was to prepare the way for the ministry of Jesus Christ. Christ's claim was clear. Their ministries had the same origin. But John the forerunner was rejected. And so it's no wonder that Christ the Savior is rejected as well. John prepared the way for the king, saying, make your hearts right, the king is coming. And for those who would not hear his message, neither would they submit when the king now stood before them. Now this then begins one long stretch that runs even further, all the way through chapter 24, the end of chapter 24, where Jesus is going to pronounce judgment upon the people of Israel, especially upon the leadership, upon all who do not believe in Him as the Messiah. And so the Lord has ordained in His wisdom that we, over the next couple of weeks or two or three weeks, that, uh, that we immerse ourselves in a part of the Bible's text that is very sober and... Um, should cause us to reflect on our own lives, our own relationship with God. And that's a good thing, right? Do we believe that? That the Bible, all of the Bible, every single part of it, is for our profit and our good. And let us hear now what our Lord has to say to those who heard Him, assuming that they belonged to God. And yet they, he said, would fall under God's own condemnation. Jesus begins by giving a series of three parables. And these are judgment parables, each of them utilizing the imagery of the Old Testament, some Old Testament picture um, of Israel. So, for example, if you... You look at just look at the next three paragraphs in your Bible. The first one starts in verse 28. This is Matthew 21, 28, and following. That paragraph, he tells a parable which utilizes the imagery of Israel as God's son. Remember, God said, um, You are my firstborn son, I've called you out of Egypt. So Israel as God's son. Then in beginning in verse 30. He tells another parable utilizing the imagery of Israel as God's vineyard. And we'll look at the Old Testament background for that in the weeks to come. And then in chapter 22, beginning in verse 1, he tells a third parable utilizing the imagery of Israel as God's bride. And the great wedding that God has to bring His bride to Himself. So these are the three parables that Jesus Tells, and in each case, the theme of those parables is one of judgment on God's, supposedly, God's people. And that means that we have before us a series of sobering sermons for people today who claim to be gods. And uh, that would include, I trust, most many, many others we know, claim to be God's people, believers in God, children of God. So it's a sobering set of sermons, but I think also it will be uh, a time for glory, a time to glory in the Lord Jesus Christ. I just want to deal with the first of these parables here this morning. Because Jesus is really continuing on his conversation with the, with the, um, the priests uh, that we just saw in this first parable. And in fact, it still relates to John the Baptist. So really continuing on, just unbroken in the same vein. And I think Matthew is the only one that records this one. Jesus tells a parable of two sons. And of course, this parable recalls a more famous parable of two sons that no doubt you have heard, sometimes called the parable of the prodigal son. We always think of the prodigal son. We usually don't think about the other son, who probably was more the point of that parable than the first one. You see that 
similar sort of themes are being reflected even in this shorter story, which gets just straight to the point. And it really doesn't need much explaining. Let's look at it again. Verse 29, here's the parable. Jesus said, a man had two sons. He goes to the first and he says, son, go out into the vineyard, go into the harvest field and work for me today. And the son says, no. No, got too many other things going on, too busy. He refuses. But afterward, he does what? He changes his mind. And that's a key phrase here. Afterward, he changes his mind. And he goes. Then he gives the second son. The, the father comes and says the same. Go into the fields and work today. And the son says, yes, sir. Right away, sir. I don't know if he says right away, but he does say yes, sir. But it's not right away at all. Um, and he sits around and he sits around and, you know, I don't know what he's doing. He finds plenty of other things to do, but not do his father's will. The first one resisted, but then repented, which is what a change of mind is. It's a repentance. It's a change of mind, a, a change of interest here. It's a, it's a synonym to the word that John the Baptist used when he preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Change your mind. Turn around. Have a change of allegiance and change of direction. Change your mind. The first one resisted, but then he repented. The second one complied um, verbally, outwardly, but he never did the will of his father. In telling this story, Jesus is standing there preaching to these people the same kinds of sermons that prophets like Jeremiah preached so many years earlier when he confronted in his own day the people of God and said, Jeremiah 7 verse 8 and following, Behold, you trust in deceptive words. You serve God with your words. He says, will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all those abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Which, of course, is what we just saw in the last section. And I can't help but wonder if there is a person who's come into this service today who has called Jesus Lord for some period of time, and yet you are living in unrepentant, ongoing sin. With your words, you have confessed the name of God, maybe even explicitly called upon the name of the Lord Jesus, but your heart is far from Him. And today, you are going on in unrepentant rebellion against your parents or continuing on to harbor anger in your soul and unwillingness to forgive those who have sinned against you. You are lying or cheating or stealing or embezzling while sitting here in the service calling yourself a Christian. You are looking at porn or being unfaithful to your spouse And you come and you sing the hymns of God without repentance in your heart? Or is there someone I fear who is so deceiving himself, naming the name of Christ, and yet filled with bitterness at God for some reason, or making an idol out of something else in your life and unwilling to relinquish it? I'm not speaking here, my greatest concern is not for people who have 
fallen into sin and wept over that sin and struggled with that sin and wept that they weren't weeping enough and then come to God and said, God, deliver me, receive me, wash me for the name and the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Set me back on the right path again. I'm not, I'm not as concerned about people like that. And if that's you, and continue to turn away from your sin. But what I'm really concerned about are those who are go, who possibly could be outwardly saying, yes, Lord, yes, sir. You sit here and sing and pray, and, and yet hearts are far from God. And I don't know. And that's, that's why I preach this way, because I can't know your heart. And... Um, in time, the Lord will expose all things that need to be exposed. Make no doubt about it. And we all ought to live in the fear of God. Or someone who calls himself a Christian, perhaps, but he can hardly give more than a tip to God's work. He withholds himself from any giving to those who are in need around him. And yet he has enough money to spend on a new gadget or she can buy a new set of clothes or they can spend their money on a hobby or a trip. All through the Bible, this message is clear. That what you, what you actually do, the choices you actually make, they reveal what you believe. You're not saved by what you do. But what you do will reveal where your heart really is. It will reveal what you really believe. You believe that Jesus is Lord, or you name Him as Lord with your mouth, but in your heart, you are still your own Lord. As long as that's the case, you are outside of the grace of Christ. You are not united to Him. For those who are united to Jesus, bow the knee to Him. And they don't do it perfectly. And they don't do it as consistently as they wish. But in their heart, they are broken under the glory of Christ, joyfully submitted to Him, and abhor that part of them that still rises up in rebellion against Him from time to time. Listen to the words of the Apostle James. Put away filthiness and rampant wickedness. Put it away. This is God's word to you today. Listen and take it. Put it away. And receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save souls. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror and he looks at himself and at once he goes away and forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, this person will be blessed in his doing. So Jesus puts it to these people. Which of the two really did the will of his father? And of course, they answered like we all would. Well, the first, the man who at, at the beginning refused, but in the end he repented and did get the father's will. Blessed are those who, though they walked many years, in their own way, yet have come to the point of repentance and crying out to the Lord Jesus Christ out of true desperation and faith. And I know there are many of you in here, that's your testimony. For years I walked apart from God. I didn't serve God. I didn't obey God. I didn't trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. He wasn't my King, my Lord, my all, my hope, my Savior, my love. I served an idol. I served myself. I served the things that were around me. I went my own way, but God be praised. I have repented of that way. I, my faith and hope and allegiance is to Jesus Christ and to Him alone. Jesus says, this is the man who in the end 
has done the will of his Father. It's the answer these people gave. They knew it was the right answer. But in answering the question, they did like King David after the parable that Nathan told. They condemned themselves. So Jesus says in the middle of verse 31, I tell you truly, the tax collectors and the prostitutes will go into the kingdom of God before you. Why? Verse 32, because John the Baptist came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes believed him. Remember John's message was repent. Turn from your sin. The king is coming. And all of those who were outsiders to the kingdom, they can have a way in. And that way in is humility and a a swearing allegiance to the king. He is not vindictive against his enemies. He lays down his life so that his enemies can come into his kingdom and be one with him. The king is coming. If If you will turn from your rebellion, he would not punish you but forgive you. And I tell you today that the lowliest sinner who changes his mind becomes great in the kingdom of God. The publicans, the tax collector, the sinner, and such were some of you. But you were washed and you were cleansed from that former way of life of which you are now ashamed. No soul is too small for His mercy. No sin is too great for His grace. Many lowly sinners believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew, the tax collector, despised. Now he's a follower of Jesus. Now he's an apostle. Now he's writing our book. A former prostitute who, broken over her sin and convinced of Jesus' claims, falls on her feet before him and washes his feet. Now she too is a follower. Right? It's the tax collectors. It's the sinners. It's the, the outsiders. Even the Gentile heathen peoples who were not God's people, who were worshiping all kinds of other idols for all of the years of their ancestors. And now they too will begin to come to Jesus Christ and they will be great in the kingdom of God. Jesus said it would be those low-down sinners who went into the kingdom before you. They will go into the kingdom first before the self-righteous priests and elders of the Jews. They will go before and away. They will, as it were, say to the quote-unquote people of God, this is the way. The way into the kingdom is on your knees. The way into the kingdom is to be broken and humbled before this great and merciful king. This is the way. And yet for all of the seeing of that, they would not believe. Jesus says in verse 32, even when you saw that, even when you saw the acceptance of the king, of those who were his enemies, yet afterward you did not change your minds. There's our word again, right? That idea of repentance. You did not change your mind and believe him. And the only question left is, will the Jewish leadership change their minds in time? Because Jesus is going to tell another parable in chapter 25 about foolish young women who were supposed to be attendants at a wedding feast and who let the oil in their lamps run out, had to run out and get more. And so the wedding feast came, the doors were shut, and they came to the door, let us in, and it was all too late. And I, I never take it for granted that God is right now granting me and granting to you an opportunity to hear his word and to be convinced and convicted by it so that we may submit ourselves in repentance before the king. You don't know that God will continue to speak to your heart the next time you come and sit your 
self into the, in this pew, in this chair. And the next time the Word of God is being preached and taught, will it, will it just wash over you like so many words? I, I can tell you, I know people who have spent time sitting right here under preaching this same preaching and who today have given testimony that they, in the words of this one young man I'm thinking of in particular, I wish I could believe, but I just, I just can't believe what you're saying. Unless we are continually sensitive to the Lord's word, who knows whether it'll be too late for us tomorrow. Whether the Lord will return in His holy and righteous judgment or whether He will call you to, to the end of your life and you will have to stand before Him and give an account. Who knows what will happen between this Sunday and next Lord's Day. The second son, though, the second son said, I go, sir. Um, I go, literally, the word sir is the same word as what? You guys know? Lord, kurios. I go, Lord. I go, sir. At which, you know, you would, you would call your father Lord, just like a, the Bible says that uh, Sarah called her husband Lord. It's just a term of respect. But you can't help but know that it must have recalled what Jesus had already said earlier back in chapter 7, that many people will say to me in that great day of judgment, what? Lord, Lord, kurios, kurios. Have we not done many wonderful works in your name? And he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. Many will say, Lord, Lord, but Jesus said, not everyone who says that will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the what? The will of my Father in heaven. Jesus had already said those exact same things back in chapter 7. And now here, here he is telling this parable that conjures up that same teaching and brings it back in. He talked about people who have done, quote, many wonderful works in his own name. The name of Jesus, actually. And you know, of course, many people consider themselves to be good people who do good deeds in our world, who even call themselves Christians and believe that Christianity is all about being a better person and doing nice things to others. And, and you look at their lives and their lives are, you know, very good outwardly. They give to charities and they are good neighbors and they are kind to strangers and yet they are apart from a humble, saving faith in Jesus Christ. And in that case, even their good deeds that are done apart from union with Jesus Christ, he calls, back in chapter 7, he calls those good things works of lawlessness. Good deeds done in the name of Jesus. Casting out demons. Preaching. Maybe they, maybe they even led somebody to God. Jesus says these are works of lawlessness. Because, here's the point, because the law was never meant to drive you to do a few more good works. The law was meant to drive you to what? To whom? Jesus Christ. Who will save you if you will humble yourself before him and then he will work through you his own righteousness. So this parable is about a change of mind. It's about a change of attitude. It's about repentance. Repentance that repudiates a former way of thinking, our former considerations. That's what God calls his people to. Listen, if you're a Christian here, and you are a repentant person. And repentance requires 
several things. It requires a repudiation or, a, excuse me, a recognition that, that your previous dispositions and your previous thinking were wrong. It requires that we recognize that we are fundamentally skewed because the facts haven't changed, but our per- perspective has changed. It requires, repentance requires humility. It requires an admission that we, in our own nature, we are just inherently sinful. That we don't have right thinking to start out with. Our thinking, even that thinking that comes so naturally, needs to be repented of. And so our thinking submitted to the thinking of God. It requires a willingness to submit to God's own word and God's way of thinking that is so foreign to our own. The prophet said, his ways are not your ways, nor are your thoughts his thoughts. So turn from your sins, turn from your thoughts so that you can be reconciled to God. For God is merciful and he will abundantly pardon It requires a willingness to submit to God's own thinking, to submit to his authority, the authority of Jesus Christ himself. And you change your mind, when you become a Christian, you change your mind about so many things. Maybe not all at once, but over the course of your life, you change your mind about so many things because you have fundamentally changed your mind about Jesus Christ himself, who he is, about his claims. You believe that he is the truth and your life and your joy I ask you this morning, do you submit your thinking to the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ? To what extent does your thinking, your perspective still need to be transformed by the word of Christ? I would admonish you to re-examine everything that you think in light of the word of God. Continually. And when you sin, when you know you have failed God, disobeyed His word, repent by examining the thinking, the kind of thinking that led up to your fall. And he says, How do, I was talking to somebody last weekend. How do I repent when I fail, when I sin? What do I do? There are a lot of things, I think, that, that could be said, but this is one of the elements. You, you, you think about what kinds of thinking led up to your going astray, and you repudiate that thinking. You allow God's thinking to transform your own. There is always a pattern of thinking that leads up to wrong, a wrong choice. And it may not be a conscious pattern of thinking, but it is a pattern of thinking nonetheless that leads up to your sin. Examine that. Repudiate that. Change your mind. Let the word of Christ change your thinking. That's the way Christians grow. Because repentance is not just an initiatory right into the Christian faith. It's not like you repent once of your wrong thinking about Jesus and then the rest of your life you go on thinking the same way you always thought about everything else in life. No, your repentance is a lifelong orientation of your heart toward Jesus such that submits to his authority to do anything he wants in his temple, anything he wants in your heart, to tell you the way to think about everything and for you to say, yes, that's right, I approve of that. And I I realize that my thinking has not been in line with your thinking, and I'm willing to submit that, and I rejoice in that. That's the heart, that's the orientation of a heart that a Christian, a true Christian has. And it will continue to transform him over the course of his Christian experience. You ought to have a really healthy fear of ever getting to the point where you don't care about your sin anymore. To be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin is the most dangerous place that a professing Christian can ever be. 
It is those who never, ever fear for their souls that they might come to that place that I fear for the most. But for those who fear the Lord and examine their hearts and persevere in the word and humbly and persistently repent of their wrong thinking and plead to God for grace, it is for those who fear the Lord who have nothing to fear from the Lord in the day of his judgment. So today, what are we to take away? I hope we'll all say, search me, O God, know my heart, try me, know my thoughts, see if there's any wicked way in me, and to cast yourself on the mercy of God, to let the word of God renew your thinking, to submit to the thinking of the Lord Jesus Christ, cast yourself on the righteousness of Jesus, because where you have failed, he has not. And he will save you. He will carry you. He will carry your sins on the cross. He will wash you clean in his blood. And he will fill you with his Holy Spirit. So that you may by his mercy do the will of your Father who is in heaven. To the glory of Jesus Christ our Savior. Amen. Let's pray. Father. We confess that our, our lives, that many of us have, have gone far astray from you, and uh, all of us have gone astray. Every one of us, like sheep, have, have gone off on our own, and, and in your mercy, Lord, you somehow we've come to have a change of mind about these things. Come to have a change of mind about Christ. And we pray that you would continue that work in us to continue to transform our minds, to grant us repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, that we would never grow hardened in our sin, that we would never grow unrepentant. And Father, I pray that if there's anyone here who has not bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ as their King, their Ruler, their Lord and Master and Savior, that today they would find how sweet he is to those who formerly rebelled against him. Lord, we rejoice in your goodness to us in his name. Amen.